thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen several messages that Luke has recorded for us. But, you know, we've seen some from Peter at the beginning, and then Stephen did that great message. Paul shared a few. But you probably noticed that all of those messages are gospel messages directed towards unbelievers. Well, now as we come to uh, Acts chapter 20, we have something new that's exciting for us. It's the, the only recorded message that Paul, in the book of Acts, delivers to believers, uh, full of a wonderful uh, truce to encourage and bless bless us. And uh, so we're going to be focusing on that this morning. But before Luke gets to that point in the book of Acts, he's going to, as he's uh, continuing with this missionary journey, he's going to share with us a few more stops uh, that Paul makes and some things that transpire. But the real main focus uh, of this morning's message will be uh, focusing on the message that Paul proclaims. But let's start. Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 1 says this. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself and embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so, and so Parter uh, to Berea accompanied him to Asia, and Aristarchus and Secundus uh, from, uh, of the Thessalonians Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia, all men with weird names, joining him uh, and going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi and after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So last week we ended in chapter 19. Uh, Paul is there in Ephesus. There's this big uproar and, and the, the leader of that city gets that under control. And so Paul you know, leaves there and he then goes to the region of Macedonia, as you can see there on the map. Uh, and he starts encouraging the churches that he already planted there in Macedonia. And then he travels down to Greece and he stays in Greece for three months, uh, just encouraging believers there. And he decides to go to Syria. As you can see, he's going to travel across the sea there. He wants to sail, but uh, there's a plot, a plot to kill him. Nothing new for Paul. The Jews were constantly trying to kill him, but they were going to wait till he got on that ship and he was kind of trapped on there and they were going to kill him. Uh, And so he became aware of this plot and he decides, well, I'm not going to go on the ship any longer. And so he decides to then travel back through land up through Macedonia and he gets to Troas. And we're going to see that something significant happens in Troas. He teaches a message and this isn't the message that is recorded for us, but there are some interesting things that we hear happen while Paul is preaching this message. Chapter 20, verse 7 uh, says this. Now, in the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. In a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him, say, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, 
had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So here Paul is, he's in Troas, he comes to these group of believers there, he's breaking bread with them, you know, most likely around dinner time, but Paul's about to leave in the morning, and Paul has all this information that he wants to pass on to this group of people, and he realizes, I have from now until morning time to do so, and so he starts preaching, and you know, he does this, we're told, all the way until midnight, so it's probably around a six-hour message. Fortunately for you, you're not going to have a six-hour message this morning. And so, you know, we're told there were many lamps in the upper room. And, and, you know, here we have electricity, but there, you know, these are open flame lamps. Uh, So imagine a crowded room. These open flame lamps would have been very stuffy. Probably why this young man named Eutychus is sitting in the window. You know, get some fresh air in the midst of all of this. And I want you to try to picture what's going on here because, you know, you have all this happening and Paul just keeps on preaching. He's going on and going and going and going. He was kind of the energizer bunny of preachers at that night. And, you know, one hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by. And now we have this guy sitting in the windowsill named Eutychus, and he's getting sleepy. He's getting tired, and he's, we're told, overcome by sleep as Paul continued speaking. Now, I'm confident some of you can relate to this because I've seen that some of you can relate to this. I can see you. You can see me. That's how it works. You know, I've been guilty of sleeping in a sermon as well. Don't worry. You know, sometimes you don't get enough sleep or, you know, whatever it may be. The sermon goes on and on and on. But, you know... um, it happens. You know, I found this video of Mr. Bean falling asleep at church, which I found humorous because you know, this is what you look like if you don't know. You know your eyes get kind of heavy, uh, and then all of a sudden your head starts to droop down, and, and oftentimes your chin hits your chest, and you kind of wake yourself up. And if, if that doesn't work, then you know, maybe you know, your chair, you, know, you fall off, that would wake you up. Your Bible falls down, the noise wakes you up. Or I speak really loud, uh, and that wakes you up. But you know, something happens, and then you feel real embarrassed. You're looking around hoping, hey, did anyone see me? That's kind of the, the thing, and you're hoping that no one does. And usually you get one person kind of smirking at you like, oh, I saw you sleeping. Uh, but, you know, maybe you get the, the evil look from someone else. Who knows? But, you know, Eutychus, he's falling asleep in the window. And, you know, what happens to him is pretty horrible because, hey, this guy falls out of the window, and he's three stories up. So, you know, he hits the ground, and he dies. Uh, now, if someone falls asleep and their Bible smashes on the ground. You know, that, that's kind of distracting. People turn around. They probably know what happened. If someone actually fell out of their sleep because they were sleeping so much, that would be kind of a distracting thing in a sermon. But imagine someone falling three stories out of a window and dying. I mean, that's pretty horrible uh, event here that takes place. And so the sermon stops. People are sad and they're shocked. And Paul, he just gets up. He goes downstairs. He lays on this guy, prays for him, and God miraculously raises this man from the dead, gives him life again and notice what Paul does he goes back in the upper room and finishes his sermon then he hangs out with them until morning and leaves and so note to self if you're going to fall asleep in a sermon make sure you're not far from the ground because you never know what could happen 
I read a story of a congregation who was having trouble with the preacher uh, preaching far too long. And so they have a business meeting about the matter and they decide, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We got a gavel and we're going to hit the pew with the gavel once you reach an hour. And that's the symbol uh, sign to say, stop doing it. So the preacher agrees, okay, when I hear that sound, I'm going to stop and I won't continue. Well, a young boy, he's all excited. Oh, let me hold the gavel. I want to do this. And so they give the gavel to the young boy and, you know, the hour comes up and, you know, the boy's too embarrassed to, to hit the pew in front of him. He just lets the, the preacher keep going. And so he's going on and on and on. And now everybody's looking at this young boy and, you know, they're just kind of mouthing the words, go on, go on, do it. And he finally gets angry and he grabs his gavel and he goes to hit the pew. Uh, and instead of hitting the pew, he hits the person sitting in the pew in front of him. And as the person is drooping over, he says, hit me again. I can still hear him. If you're teaching the Bible, it's a good thing to know how long the people you're teaching to can listen and try not to exceed that. So Paul has this very long message, starts now his travels. Let's see where he goes next, verse 13. Then he went ahead to the ship and sailed across Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to uh, Mytilene. We sailed from there and came the next day opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed in Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. For Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So Paul and his traveling companions, they, they leave Troas and they're sailing down to Miletus. And, you know, he has this plan. He wants to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. But, you know, he also knows that those who are there in Ephesus, as you can see from the map, Miletus is about two uh, or 20 miles south of Ephesus. He doesn't want to stop in Ephesus because um, recognizing, you know what, hey, it's not to slight them, but I want to get the, to Jerusalem in time for the day of Pentecost. And I know if I go to Ephesus, it's not going to be a short journey. I can't come and just, you know, spend the night there. I want to invest in them. But he says, you know what, I still want to pour into the leaders. So he gets to Miletus and he calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, you know what, can you meet me in Miletus, because I want to encourage you guys, I want to share something with you before I continue my journey to Jerusalem, and, and it's this group of people that we have this recorded message that Paul proclaims to, that he preaches to believers this great message, and really in this message, Paul is going to deal with three main things. In verses 18 to 21, Paul reviews the past. He's going to talk about his past time with the Ephesian believers. Remember, he ministered to them for three years, and he's going to give us some wonderful things about that. In verses 22 through 27, he's going to discuss the present. In these verses, he's going to share his present personal feelings in light of the past and the future. And then in verses 28 through 38, he's going to warn about the future. Hey, the the leaders, they need to know about the future. There are things coming to them personally and to as a church that they need to be aware of and ready for that they're going to have to face. This is one of my favorite messages in scripture. And so, you know, I want to do it justice. And so this morning we're going to look at the past. Next week we're going to look at the present. And the week after that we're going to look at the future and break this message down and see all the great things that Paul shares with us and encourages us with. So tonight, uh, this morning let's look at the past starting uh, in verse 18. Let's see what Paul has to say to us. 
And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses that we see here, Paul focuses on three things about his past ministry in Ephesus. First, the motive of his ministry. Second, the manner of his ministry. And third, the message of his ministry. And and all three of these things are are a great example to us. So we're going to look at some examples of what our motive in ministry should be, the manner of our ministry, and ultimately the message that we proclaim, what should be included in it. So let's start with what we see here, the motive of Paul's ministry. We're told in verse 19, Paul says, serving the Lord. You know, this is something that I think is so important. You see throughout Paul's ministry in life, that was the real motive for him. The motive was all about serving Jesus, you know, giving glory to Jesus, doing it for him. That's kind of what drove Paul, what was the motive for all that he did. And this is so important for us to understand because all of us are called to minister. All of us are called to serve. But the real question we have to ask ourselves is, what is our motive behind that? Why are we doing that? Why are we engaged in different aspects of service towards people in different areas? And we need to really ask ourselves the question, you know, are we doing it for the people or are we doing it ultimately for the Lord? Are we serving for the Lord? Is that the first and foremost priority for us? I know as a young man, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. There was these, you know, I felt unrealistic expectations for me and my behavior and how I should do things. And so when I would serve, it was really not for the Lord. It was for people. You know, I wanted to please them. I wanted to try to live up to some of the expectations that they had for me. And I learned real quickly that you can't please everybody. And I also learned that people are fickle. What pleases them this week isn't going to please them next week. And I was just so frustrated trying to please people and that being my motivation. And I just kept getting, you know, down and frustrated. And I finally realized there's only one person I should be focused on pleasing, and that is Jesus. And when he's the focus, ministry is so much better. When you're just focused on pleasing Jesus, everything else comes in line. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul speaking says something that really shows his heart for serving the Lord as his motive. He says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul recognized something. The only way you can truly be a bondservant of Jesus Christ is if you're not a man pleaser, but instead a God pleaser. You have to be a God pleaser if you want to be a servant of of Jesus. Once you become a man pleaser, you totally get sidetracked from what the Lord wants you to do. So the first thing I want you to note is our motive in ministry should be like Paul, to serve the Lord and please him. The motive behind any ministry that we do should ultimately be first and foremost, I'm doing this for Jesus. That's the motive. That's the reason. Not for myself, not for others. First and foremost, I do this for Jesus, for his glory, for his purpose, for his will. So the motive of Paul's ministry was to please the Lord. Now we're going to see the manner of his ministry. Verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. 
Paul says, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, that I came to your region, which is where Ephesus is, in what manner I always lived among you. There are four things that Paul shares here about the manner in which he ministered among the Ephesians that I want us to take note of because there are four things that are really things that we should be having as we seek to minister to others as well. Notice verse 8 says, You know what manner I always lived among you. The way in which we live among people is the example that we set before them. And something important for us to remember is that all of us set an example. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is it a good one or a bad one? Is it a godly one or a sinful one? Because we're setting an example. You know, sometimes we just think, well, I'm setting an example only if it's good. No, you set an example all the time. The question is, what kind of an example are you setting to others? Notice what Paul says. You know what manner I always lived among you. When I was with you guys for those three years in Ephesus, you know what manner of life I always lived, that I was a godly man with a godly example before you. That's what he's bringing up to them, helping them recognize the example that he set. The first thing I want you to note about the manner of Paul's ministry is that Paul ministered by a godly example, and that's something that we need to be doing as well. You know, all of us are ministering. You, you might, oh, that ministry is for, you know, people in full-time ministry like pastors and so forth. No, you, you miss what the scriptures say. In, in every relationship you have, you're ministering. You, you have an opportunity to invest in people. And the question is, what kind of example are you? Guess what? If you're a parent, you have a huge ministry to your kids. If you're a spouse, you have a huge ministry to your spouse. All of us have huge ministries to family, to friends, to neighbors, to co-workers. The reality is the people that God brings into our life, they're there for us to impact and to serve and to minister to. And the question you have to ask yourself is, what kind of example are you setting before the people that God has placed in your life? You know, I, I think that people don't just want to hear messages. A lot of us as Christians, we know what the Bible says. We can tell people what the Bible says. But people want more than just to hear a message. They want to see it lived out. They want to be able to look at your life and say, I don't just want to hear you tell me what's right. I want to see you live what's right. And there's so much more power when someone is living what's right and saying what's right as opposed to just saying what's right but living what's wrong. Francis of Assisi said, It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. It's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. You know, the world doesn't need more do as I say, not as I do mindset. They need more of do as I do. I'll demonstrate it for you. I'll be that example for you to see. And I love this about Paul and his ministry and his pastoral teaching. He wasn't just telling people, this is what you should do. He was a man who was an example of it, demonstrating this is how you should do it. Look at my life. Watch me. He even is bold enough to say in Scripture, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, this was a man who recognized, hey, I am an example of Jesus Christ to you. And all of us should take that to heart. That should be our desire. That should be what we want to do. So the first thing to note about the manner of Paul's ministry is he ministered by example. The second thing that we note about the manner of Paul's ministry is in verse 19. We're told that he served the Lord with all humility. You know, humility is one of the most vital characteristics for effective ministry. And sadly, when you look at a lot of people as pastors, and I know many of them, this is a lacking quality. You know, there's a lot of pride in ministry, and humility is so important to have. 
Humility starts with a sense of being completely undeserving of anything that God has done for you, any way that God is using you. You recognize you're not worthy, and it brings you to a place of humility. Romans 3.10 tells us, There is none righteous, no, not one. Yeah, that's important to remember. None of us are righteous. No, not one. None of us deserve what God did for us on the cross. None of us deserve that God is now changing our life. None of us deserve that God is using us. None of us deserve the future that is promised to us of heaven. And I think Paul understood this better than most. And maybe his past was part of that because he was a murderer of Christians before he became saved. But he realized this reality about what he was like. And, and I think there's an interesting I would say progression. Some might look at it as a digression, but notice how Paul refers to himself throughout his ministry. He starts off in 1 Corinthians 15.9. He declares to be the least of the apostles. Later on in his ministry in Ephesians 3.8, he saw himself as less than the least of the saints. And towards the end of his ministry in life in 1 Timothy 1.15, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Notice he didn't say, I once was the chief of sinners, or I used to be the chief of sinners. He says, I am now the chief of sinners. Paul went from seeing himself as the least of apostles, which is still pretty good. I mean, there's only 11 guys higher than you. So, you know, I'm the least of the 12. So, you know, that's still a pretty good thing. But then he starts to really recognize more of what he really is. And then he drops himself to saying, hey, I'm the least of all saints. I'm the least of all believers, but he's still at least in that category. And then towards the end of his life, he goes even farther and says, I'm the chief of sinners. Now, how can this be? Did Paul become worse and worse the longer he walked with God? No. Did he do more horrible sins more frequently throughout his life? No. So why is it that Paul grew in the Lord and then called himself a worse and worse individual or sinner i think paul simply discovered that the closer he drew to the lord the more intimate he became with the lord the more he recognized what he really was as he saw the perfection of jesus christ and he was with the light the sinless lamb of god and he saw that in relationship to himself he started to realize wow i am a wretched sinner You know, I think one of our biggest problems that we have is we see ourselves in a way that we're really not. You know, pride causes us to look at ourselves better than we are. And when you just look out at the world and how sinful it is, it's real easy to start getting an elevated, puffed up view of yourself because you can say, well, I'm doing better than them and I'm definitely doing better than them. And even in the body of Christ, among other believers, we can still pick out those that we're doing better than. And if that's what we're comparing ourselves to, it's easy to get prideful. It's easy to get puffed up. It's easy to have a view of yourself that is not biblically accurate. The person that we should be comparing ourselves to and the only person we should be comparing ourselves to is Jesus. And guess what? He was perfect. None of us come close to what he is and who he is. And the more you see him and spend time with him and understand him, the more you see what you really are. And it brings you to a place like Paul where maybe you start thinking, well, you know, I'm still the best in this church. And and then you really start, well, maybe I'm the worst in this church. And then finally, man, I'm just a wretched sinner. But I want you to understand something that, you know, Paul's not doing this in a, in a sense of, oh, some depressive, look how bad I am type of way. I think he's writing this in a celebration of God's grace. 
Hey, I'm the cheapest of sinners, which just shows what God can do. The mercy of God, the love of God, that he would save a man like me who murdered Christians, that God would use me, the grace that he would pour out upon me, unmerited, undeserved favor, that he would use a guy like me. Paul just realized, hey, I'm declaring, I'm this as a declaration of how amazing and merciful and loving God is. And I think it's a wonderful thing to come to that recognition because it draws you to the Lord and you see, wow, I can't believe you loved me. And you still love me, and you use me, and you want to do great things through my life because I am undeserving. The second thing I want you to note about the manner of Paul's ministry is he ministered with humility. And that's something that we definitely need to do as well. I really think this is one of the most important things you need as a minister. And it's something I definitely have struggled with, especially early on in ministry. I had a lot of pride. And the Lord had to break me of so many things. And it's such a hindrance to what the Lord wants to do. You know, one of the verses that God has used in my life a lot is James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One of the most important reasons to be humble is because God gives you grace when you are. And one of the worst reasons to be prideful is because God resists the proud. Be humble because he'll give you grace. Don't be prideful because if you are, he resists you. And since God resists proud people and gives grace to humble people, James says in verse 7, it should lead us to submit to God. You see, submission to God is an act of humility. It means to order yourself under God, to surrender his rule over your life. And as you humbly submit to God, instead of resisting you, he'll pour his grace upon you. And then notice the next thing that James tells us to do. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. But this is such an important process. You see, if you're prideful, God's resisting you. And I've been there. And I'm trying to resist the devil, and it's not working. Why? Because in my pride, God is resisting me. And you can't resist the devil while God's resisting you. It doesn't work. You need God on your side. You need God's grace. And it's in that humility that you receive that. And that battle, that supernatural battle against the enemy, is so much more fruitful and effective when we come in humility and submission to the Lord. And it's at that moment that we say, now... I'm going to fight the enemy. Now, because God is with me to help me, I have his grace upon me, I'm completely submitted to him, not depending on myself, now I'm going to resist the devil. And the result of that is he's going to flee. But guess what? He's not going to flee if you're just fighting him on your own. He'll whoop on you and he'll whoop on me. He only flees because of the power of God that we're dependent on and submitted to and trusting in. Humility is so important for ministry, to be victorious in all areas so one of the most important things we need to have as ministers is humility and really one of the greatest destroyers of ministry is pride so the first thing to note about the manner of paul's ministry is he ministered by a godly example the second with humility the third thing we're told in verse 19 is he ministered with many tears paul was sensitive to the needs of people around him and he was moved by the needs of people around him moved so much it brought him to tears because of it the third thing i want you to note about the manner of paul's ministry is that he ministered with sensitivity and that's definitely something we need as well you know as we minister to people we need to be sensitive to what they're going through to where they're at to what's happening in their life 
You know, I think a good question to ask yourself as you minister to people is, are you moved by what they go through? Does it impact you? Are you moved by it? Or are you only moved by what you go through? If you're only moved by what you go through, what we call that is self-centeredness, selfishness. It's all about you. That's all you care about. It doesn't move you what anyone else is doing or what they're going through. You're only moved by you. And that's not good. And that's not good in ministry. Because ministry is about others. It's about investing in others. And we need to be moved by what others go through. You know, Romans twelve fifteen is a great challenge for us it says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep we need to be moved by those people around us when people are happy and rejoicing because god's doing great things rejoice with them and you think oh of course well actually i see so often people don't rejoice they think why did they get that and not me why is giving the god giving them that blessing and not blessing me with that and we just once again it's all about us why didn't i get it instead of how wonderful that you've been blessed by the lord how great that this is going on in your life that we would just rejoice with them and also that we would be moved to sadness when people are weeping that it would be like oh well you know get over it i'll just deal with it that no we see people broken and sad by the the hardships and difficulties of life that we would be moved because of this You know, this has definitely been an area of struggle for me in ministry, something that I prayed over the years that God would really help me to be more sensitive. I find this is something that you just see in men as a whole, that we're less sensitive to the needs of others than we should be. You see, I grew up, and it's a little different today, but, you know, I definitely grew up that, you know, if you cry... If you're sensitive, that's not manly. You know, crying's for babies, sensitivity's for girls. I mean, that's kind of what the coaches would teach. That's what, you know, people in my life, my peers, that, that was the focus. That was the mindset. You know, that's not manly. You don't do that. And so when I would see people hurting, when I would see people going through things, well, I'm not going to be moved. You know, I don't want to cry. I don't want to let myself, you know, get emotional with this because that's not manly. That's not something that men do. But, you know, I was completely wrong. The greatest, most manly man ever to live is Jesus Christ. And you look at his life, and it was filled with sensitivity, filled with being moved, filled with tears. Lazarus dies, and what are we told? That Jesus wept over that. He was moved by that. When he was rejected, he wept over Jerusalem, the people living there. He was moved by their rejection of him. He was moved by the fate that was coming to them. He was moved with compassion over the multitude because they were like sheep, without a shepherd he was sensitive to the needs of the people around them you want to be a manly man you need to be sensitive like jesus was in ministry we're surrounded by people who are in pain people who are going through hardship people who need us to be sensitive people who need us to be moved people who need us to respond in that way we see that with jesus we see that here with paul So Paul ministered by example with humility, with sensitivity. The next thing we see in verse 19, we're told that Paul served the Lord with many trials which happened to him by the plotting of the Jews. Throughout the books of Acts, we've already seen Paul, as he ministers, he's regularly, pretty much every place he goes, a trial comes, a difficulty happens. And these aren't little baby trials, and we call everything a trial these days. But, I mean, Paul had some serious trials. I mean, the guy was beaten. The guy was stoned. Practically, I mean, most people think possibly to death. They definitely thought he was dead, dragged him out. He was falsely imprisoned. I mean, here's a man who went through significant, difficult trials, and he didn't pack it in. 
He didn't say, well, forget this. It's not worth it. I'm no longer going to continue. If this is what's going to come to my life for ministering for Jesus Christ, then, you know, Jesus, you can have this ministry. Give it to someone else. I'm done. We didn't see that with Paul. He ministered in trials. He continued in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And that's the fourth thing I want us to note about the manner of Paul's ministry. Paul ministered in trials, and that is what we need to do as well. You know, oftentimes I see, and I saw it in myself early on, we're willing to minister when the circumstances are the way we want them. Oh, Lord, I'll minister for you if it's like this, this, and this. And, oh, if the circumstances are great here, I mean, I'm happy to give you all my time. But, you know, we're limited in what we're willing to do based on the circumstances that we're in. Because once the circumstances get a little negative and difficult and harsh, and it's like, well, wait a second, Lord, I didn't sign up for this. Wait a second, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, we're only willing to do it when it's easy. And if you're only willing to minister when it's easy, let me tell you this, you're going to do very little ministry. Almost all ministry brings trials. We're in a spiritual battle. The enemy wants to destroy you. And if he knows that all it takes is a little bit of an attack and you're going to quit, he'll be attacking you constantly. The reality is if you want to minister, it's difficult. It's hard. And we have to recognize, you know what? I have to do this in trials. That's just part of it. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We just got to understand it just comes along with the package. So Paul reveals four things about the manner in which he ministered. It was by example, with humility, with sensitivity, and in trials. All these four things are great examples to us for the manner in which we should be ministering to others. So now we've looked at the motive, we've looked at the manner, and now we're going to finish looking at the message of Paul's ministry. Verse 20 says this, How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There are three things I want you to note here about the message of Paul's ministry, of how he declared God's word to others. First, we're told that Paul kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to them. When it came to the message of God's word, Paul kept nothing back, but proclaimed it all, which really should be the way in which we should approach the word of God and sharing the word of God with others. The first thing I want you to know when it comes to the messages that we proclaim is we need to proclaim all of Scripture because all of it is helpful. When we share God's word with people, we need to understand all Scripture is inspired by God, all Scripture is profitable to people, and so they need all of it. You know, this is one of the reasons we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible, because I don't just want to go and, and jump from topic to topic that I like and leave everything else in Scripture out. We want to take you through all of it. It's going to take a while, but that's the heart of going through the Scriptures, going through the Word of God, and really grasping and understanding that. Paul, at one point in time in his life, was able to say, you know, I was able to share the whole counsel of God to you. What a wonderful thing to be able to declare. You know, in the church world today, there's a movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. It's a group of churches that, you know, they don't want to offend anyone. And so they start to remove things, you know, from the Bible or from their teaching that they feel like people don't want to hear. And we want to, you know, just be sensitive to that so they'll come and they'll listen. And, you know, and that's kind of the heart of it. But unfortunately, they remove sin because, you know, no one wants to hear they're a sinner. You know, so we definitely don't want to talk about that. They remove hell because no one wants to hear about their going there. And so we're just going to talk about the things that people do want to hear and we're going to leave out the others. 
Well, here's one of the big problems with that. Sin and hell are vital uh, things to the gospel. You need to know you're a sinner going to hell before you're going to recognize you need a savior. You remove that, it totally undermines the gospel, which is the foundation of all that we believe. And so this movement is ultimately saying, you know what, we're not going to teach the whole council. We're not going to deal with all scripture. We're just going to share what we think people are going to like to hear and leave out what they don't. And that's a horrible way to approach scripture, a horrible way to approach a message. Hey, this is God's inspired word. We're not ones who get to pick and choose. We need to declare all of it to people and let the Lord speak and move through his word. Paul kept nothing back from the believers in Ephesus, and we need to keep nothing back from those that we share the word of God with as well. The second thing we're told about Paul's message is in verse 20. It said, he taught them publicly from house to house, testified to Jews and also to Greeks. So Paul, he first proclaimed all scripture because it's all helpful. And second, he proclaimed it publicly, but also privately from house to house and also to everybody, both to Jews and Greeks, which encompasses the whole world at that point in time. So his mindset was, you know what? I want to teach it publicly. I want to teach it privately. And I want to teach it to everyone that I possibly can. And that definitely should be our heart as well when it comes to declaring the word of God. The second thing I want you to note here when it comes to the message that we proclaim is we need to proclaim the message of God's word publicly, privately, and to everyone who will listen. If we want to be effective in ministry, the most most effective thing we can do is bring the word of God. That's the thing that really has power, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. We want to communicate that. We want to help people understand it. But we need to be willing to minister in any place, to any person, at any time. You know, we shouldn't say, well, only this group is worthy of God's word, and we're definitely not going to deal with that group. And, you know, I only have this time that I'm going to, you know, be willing to share with people. We need to be like Paul, who says, you know what? Hey, I'm willing to share it publicly. I'm willing to share it privately. I'm willing to share it with whomever God brings across my path. And that hopefully is our heart as well. The third thing we're told about Paul's message is in verse 21. He taught repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think this is interesting to note here because repentance towards God and faith toward Jesus is the heart of the gospel. When you share with someone how to be saved, what do they need to do? They need to repent of their sin and they need to place their faith in who Jesus is, that he's God and what Jesus has done, that he died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. Repentance and faith in Christ is at the heart of the gospel message. And that is something that Paul always came back to. You know, Paul didn't usually leave out, you know, hey, if I'm going to preach, I'm going to make sure as I share the word of God, as I encourage, but I want to make sure the gospel goes forth because if there's anyone there who doesn't know it, I know it's the gospel that is the power to change lives for all eternity. And this is another thing that we need to be doing as well. The third thing I want you to note when it comes to the message that we proclaim is we need to proclaim the most important message, the gospel. It doesn't mean that's all we ever do, but you know that is something that we can't lose sight of. As great of a Bible expositor as you might be, you always want to come back to the gospel and make sure that is being shared with people because people could understand that God created the world. They could understand all sorts of things. But if they haven't accepted the gospel, they're still not saved. That's the one message that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God unto salvation. It's that message that has power to save lives. And so it should be a message that's dear to our heart that we want to proclaim to people. And after this service, we're going to get to go into the park and do an outreach and hopefully get opportunities to share this great message with those that God prepares to hear it. So in these verses, Paul shares with us about his past ministry in Ephesus. 
and he focuses on three important things. The motive of his ministry, the manner of his ministry, and the method of his ministry. And these three ways that Paul ministered in Ephesus is a great example for how we should minister. Our motive, ultimately, first and foremost, should be, I want to just please the Lord. I'm doing it to serve Jesus Christ. Our manner of ministry, we should administer by a godly example, with humility, with sensitivity, and do it in trials. And our message in ministry should be to proclaim all of Scripture, because it's all helpful, Proclaim it publicly and privately and to everyone, and to proclaim the gospel. Can I get the worship team to come on up? As I mentioned, we're about to do an outreach for those who are able to join us after we finish and kind of tear everything down. Uh, we're going to go to the park. Uh, we got, you know, we're going to grill burgers and hot dogs, and we got snow cones and face painting. And we're just going to invite those there to join with us and share with them. Uh, I'd love it if you can be a part of that. But, you know, I recognize, and I hope you do as well, that, you know, we do not have the capacity, you know, just because we show up uh, to move hearts. That's something the Spirit of God needs to do. And so before we go, uh, I just want to take some time before we uh, end in a song of worship just to uh, leave it open for anyone who would like to pray. I want to just address the Lord and say, Lord, we need help. We want you to move in the hearts of the people. We want you to draw people to the park, prepare their heart to receive the truth of the gospel, and give us boldness to be able to proclaim it. And so uh, let's just close with that. Take some time just to ask the Lord uh, to do a great work uh, as we go out and try to reach people for him. Uh, And so if you'd like to pray, I'm going to leave it open for you to do that. We'll agree with you, uh, and then I will close us in prayer, and we'll finish with the final song.